Hello everyone, I'm Naomi Baratera. And I'm Stuart Holt. And we are so excited to share that the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast has reached a major milestone. Our podcast has been listened to over one million times. The mission of the Metropolitan Opera Guild is to foster opera education and appreciation, and we are so excited to engage a global audience of listeners with our podcast episodes. We also want to thank our roster of lecturers who make the content of our episodes possible and give us a variety of entry points and insights into this art form we love. So thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, and thank you for supporting the Metropolitan Opera Guild and all of our opera education endeavors. Here's to the next million. Marcello becomes Mark, Rodolfo becomes Roger, and Mimi stays Mimi. Jonathan Larson's musical Rent reimagined Puccini's La Boheme for musical theater audiences around the globe. Paris in the 19th century and New York City's East Village in 1989 may seem worlds apart, but the worlds of opera and musical theater are closer than they may appear. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we dive into a comparison of these two beloved art forms. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. everyone, I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and before we dive into our episode for today, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about an exciting travel opportunity. From September 30th through October 9th, 2020, I will be traveling with fellow opera lovers on a cruise through Italy, Croatia, and Greece. Throughout the voyage, we'll visit amazing historical sites, including La Fenice, the Riace Bronzes, and the UNESCO World Heritage Site at Ravello, a city with a rich musical past and present, and so much more. In addition to these exciting offshore excursions, you'll be treated to nightly onboard concerts featuring the works of Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Verdi, and Puccini. And I'll be providing a series of exclusive guild lectures paired with each performance. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experience the Mediterranean through the eyes of an opera historian, and I would love for you to join me on this adventure. Cabins are still available. For more information, visit metguild.org travel or call 212-769-7009. I would say bon voyage, but since we're beginning and ending this cruise in Italy, I'll say buon viaggio. Now, into our episode.
The opera stage and the Broadway stage share many conventions, like lavish scenery, exquisite costuming, and awe-inspiring voices. For Miss Saigon, Madama Butterfly serves as the source material, while Tony Award-winning Hadestown and Gluck's Orfeo ed Eurydice are both unique interpretations of the Orpheus myth. But what are the characteristics that make these dramatic forms distinct? On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have my co-host Stuart Holt taking a closer look at the similarities and differences between opera and musical theater. Um, Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I am Stuart Holt. I'm the Director of School Programs and Community Engagement here at the Metropolitan Opera Guild. I thank you for joining me this morning uh, and spending some time. And I promise we are going to have fun today. All right? So it's a Saturday. Uh, We're talking about musical theater. And I want to sort of let you in on a true confession that I love musical theater. Uh, Musical theater served as a gateway for me for opera. So I didn't come to opera until I was uh, in my undergraduate degree, but I was a kid who loved musical theater, who sang in choirs, who did musicals in school, and really, when I got to undergraduate and I discovered the world of opera, I discovered all of the ways that it intersects together. So let me sort of lay some ground rules for today. One, we're not really going to get into the discussion of the idea of, is musical theater better than opera, or is opera better than musical theater? All right, I leave that for you to decide at home, but our goal today is to sort of talk about how these work together and how they both are about telling stories. All right, we'll talk a little bit about the history and how they intersect together this morning. We'll look at three operas that happen to be on the Met season this year that also have musical connections. And then finally, we will also take a look at how opera plays a role in the Uh, how musical theater plays a role in the opera house itself. So, to quote a musical itself, let's start at the very beginning. (laughs) Ancient Greek theater and liturgical drama. So we all know that the ancient Greeks began with their theater creating both comedies and tragedies. While the plays we think of in modern times, we think of that smiley mask and that frowny mask, They also included moments of both dance and music. Now in the comedies, the musical and the dance was traditionally used as a big finale to end the comedy. So we'd sing a rousing chorus, there'd be dancing, we'd kick everybody out, and we'd all leave going home happy. In the tragedies, the musical moments served as interludes that allowed us to sort of change the scene or break up the episodes or the scenes that are happening. In theory, the Greeks are really thinking about a holistic piece of art. They're thinking about spoken word, song, movement, and the drama of storytelling. As we move into the medieval period, we think about things like liturgical drama. And in liturgical drama, we know that the text is in Latin. It was frequently chanted on simple melodies that were accessible. But then you also had this incidental dance music or you had uh, processional music that may accompany things. Of course, it began in the church, and it moved into what we see in this photograph, these idea of wagons. So we have liturgical uh, drama that's rolled out into the streets, being accessible for everybody. And of course, it was a chance for us to be exposed to a religious experience. 
As we move forward in time, we come to a group of gentlemen that we all know very well if we know our opera history. And that's these guys, the Florentine Camerata. And as we jump into the Renaissance, we know that these gentlemen came together and they wanted to create a new art form. But their direct influence was the ancient Greeks themselves. Knowing that not everything was spoken, we know that some things were sung, thereby creating the idea of what we as an opera audience know as recitative. It had its first meeting in 1573 and it reached its height in the time of 1577 to 1582. Now we also know that as a direct result from their meeting and this concept of recit and aria, it led to the creation of operas that we know as number operas. So it would open with an overture, then we'd probably have some sort of large chorus number, then we would have some uh, smaller performance, then we may have some recitative that moves the action forward, then we may have a duet or a trio, but it's pretty formulaic. And as I lay that out for you, if you go to enough musical theater, or we think about the traditional canon, so Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, it does really follow that numbers idea. So there's an overture, then there's a big chorus number that kicks everything off, and then we move into our smaller scenes. But instead of separating it with recitative, we're separating it with spoken dialogue. So that intersection is happening there. So we've got a basic framework for opera, which when we really break it down is also a basic framework as we move into the world of musical theater. Now, of course, we see these lovely folks arrive on the scene in the 16th and 18th century, and this is Commedia dell'arte. These are stock characters that appeared and were familiar to the audience. They were things like the clown, the doctor, the old man, the young woman, or the ingenue. And they become a component for us in the opera world in the land of opera buffa. So those comedies, things like Barber of Seville, or uh, the elixir of love. We see these characters come up again and again. These characters also become important for us in musical theater. Think about it. There's always the bad guy. There's always the ingenue or the love interest. There's always the ardent hero that is pursuing the ingenue. Then there's always that group of secondary couples. If we think about that traditional canon, there's always the lead ingenue couple, and then there's the comedic couple. So if we use something like Oklahoma, we have uh, Curly and Lori as our dramatic couple, and then we have Will Parker and Ado Annie as our comedic secondary couple. So again, we're connecting this idea of commedia dell'arte. Well, it all comes together, musical theater and opera, in 1728. This is the arrival of the Beggar's Opera by John Gay. So this is what we call a ballad opera. Now, a ballad opera was a satirical musical play that used the musical conventions of opera but avoided any sort of recitative. We only are using spoken dialogue. The score featured both popular music, opera arias, hymns, and folk tunes. So really, we're combining all of the things that we've talked about so far, but it has an underlying use of a satirical text overlaid. The performance, when it debuted, would run for 62 performances and is the first recorded long-running play. The Beggar's Opera would come to New York in 1753, but it's important to think about what was happening in America and early musical theater. 
The U.S. basically consisted of things that came from Britain, that makes sense, and they included things like pantomime and things like burletta, Italian for little joke. So an example of what a burletta would be, Pergolesi's opera La Serva Pedrona started out as a burletta. So it started out as a short little piece and was expanded into a full opera. So in order to give you a flavor of what this sounds like, we're going to listen to an, a bit of an aria from this. This is Lucy Lockett's It Is the Pleasure of All You Fine Men. Um, and listen to how we, Gay uses the orchestra. And also listen to how he uses the text. All right? This is just an audio clip. It is in English, so you should be able to understand. It is the pleasure of all you fine men to insult the women you have ruined. How cruel are the traitors who lie and swear in jest to cheat and guard the creatures of virtue, fame, and rest. So it's pretty, in its style, pretty operatic, I would say. The vocal writing is quite florid. It goes high. The orchestra is very simple. And underneath, we have that spoken dialogue. But yet, this is also something that could potentially translate to a Broadway house. And when it was in New York, that's where it was. Now, John Gay's The Beggar's Opera serves as a direct springboard for a musical that we all know very well that appeared much later in the 20s, and that was The Three Penny Opera by Kurt Weill. Of course, the number that we know the most from that, that has been recorded so many times by every singer, is Mac the Knife. All right? So this is an influence for a musical theater piece. In June of 1920, there was a successful uh, revival of John Gay's opera, and it ended up being that Bertolt Breck was interested in that piece, and he took his lover, Elizabeth Hauptmann, to the piece, and they decided they wanted to make their own version of it. They wanted to create a German version of this beggar's opera. They loved the idea that it was looking at the condition of the London poor and was a critique of that, but also these strong female characters that we see in the Three Penny Opera. In uh, 1928, Brecht was actually approached by a theater producer who said, you know what, I'm looking for a new work, and I think that perhaps Three Penny is something that I would like to see. We know that Kurt Weill's score is influenced by jazz, German dance, and music of the time, but the orchestra involves a rather small ensemble. So speaking to the idea that somebody said that the orchestras are smaller for musical theater, it ended up being that in the original performances, some seven players played a total of 23 different instrumental parts. So typically, it also uses a smaller orchestra. So seven or maybe even less, depending on whether or not you've got something recorded in advance. But when we think about 23 players in an orchestra pit, that's very on par with what we might see in an early opera, something like John Gay or the Pergolesi Serva Pedrona. 
So the orchestras at that point are very similar. With having seven people play all those roles, it certainly is not the operatic scale. But I couldn't pass up the chance, because we all love Mac the Knife, so a chance to see the National Theatre production from 2016, um, and you'll get a sense of what this sounds like when it's not recorded by somebody like Bobby Darren singing <laughs> Mac the Knife. A shark's teeth flash like diamonds, shine and sparkle in the night. But McKeith wears just a switchblade, and he keeps it out of sight on a Sunday down a back street lies a carcass turning gray with his back turned and his knife clean Mackie quietly slings away in the city London's bankers sitting quietly on their gold. Mac the knife steals all their money, saunters off to face the cold in the free. So listening to that and comparison with John Gay, the text is still vitally important. So whether we're thinking about a musical theater piece or we're thinking about the opera, we have an emphasis with text and storytelling. Uh, this entire production is available on YouTube and it's really fantastic. So I encourage you, if you've not seen it, to take a look at it. So we have spoken dialogue, we have some singing, dancing, and movement, and not much in the way of recitative, but we have a sort of what we might call later in opera a sprechstemma, so a spoken on a pitch that's not necessarily accompanied, sort of what we heard at the beginning of that. Both of these pieces are things that are done by opera companies, but they're also done in a musical theater house. Well, this automatically propels us towards a hot-button topic, operetta. We define operetta as a short opera, usually on a light or humorous theme, and typically having spoken dialogue. This takes us into the idea of these pieces that we may know very well. Orpheus and the Underworld, HMS Pinafore, or The Merry Widow. Of course, these were all very popular in France, Austria, and England. We met composers like Johann Strauss, uh, Jacques Offenbach, and of course, Gilbert and Sullivan. And it's important that these relate directly to that idea of the numbers opera. So again, if we think about HMS Pinafore, it starts with a rollicking overture, and then the first thing we hear is a big old chorus with all of those sailors on the ship. 
It then moves into some spoken dialogue, an aria, a duet, a trio, more spoken dialogue separating those things out. Much like we have with the numbers opera, instead we have recitative dividing those things. We know that Orpheus debuted in 1858, HMS Pinafore was in 1878, and The Merry Widow appears in 1905. This leads us to the United States, and of course, the first American musical, The Black Crook, in 1866, debuted at a space that does not exist anymore called Niblo's Garden. It was a 3,200-seat house that was originally located on what is now the corner of Broadway and Prince Street. It ran for a record-breaking 474 performances and broke a million dollars at the box office. The piece was five and a half hours in length, and it became famous for two things. One, its special effects. As you can see, this is a, a, a photo uh, or a drawing from what the set and the performance looked like. And the other thing was something that was very risque for the time, and that was skimpy costumes on ladies that showed a lot of legs. So if you wanted to see the show, you went for two reasons. One, because you wanted to see the legs, or you wanted to see this grand scale of performances. It started out first as a melodrama by Charles Ambaras, and it re retold the Faust story, so something that we know really, really well. But it borrowed liberally from other plays. The music was selected and arranged by Thomas Baker, and consists of mostly of adaptations of existing pieces, but it included some new songs composed for the piece, including a really hit rousing number called You Naughty Naughty Men. Now, I was sort of trying to find what could I find on this and could I find a musical example. And our very generous friend, maestro Leonard Bernstein, actually did a whole conversation back in the 50s, and it's been captured on YouTube as part of his omnibus videos where he talks about musical theater. And one of the things that he talks about is the black crook. So instead of listening to me, let's take a look at maestro. And he's even going to play some of the music so you get to hear it. This is the glittering world of musical theater, a vast field that covers everything from Goethe Demerung to your nephews. Oh, it all began back in 1866, 90 years ago, just after the Civil War, with a great extravaganza entitled The Black Crook, a smash hit which contained this showstopper, a song, a comedy song called You Naughty Naughty Men. This song, of course, had nothing at all to do with the plot, but it served to amuse the audience while they changed the scenery. I will never more deceive you or of happiness bereave you, but I'll die and make you grieve you, oh, you naughty, naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying, all the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying, all the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty, naughty men. Now, why that song 
should stop any show is a mystery to me. But it's important because, and only because, the Black Crook is historically considered to be our first American musical comedy. Actually, it was a musical comedy by uh, sheer accident, being a pastiche of two totally different shows. This happened when a stranded ballet troupe attached itself to a bad melodrama, thus acquiring a plot. Of course, the whole thing lasted five and a half hours, but nobody left. They loved it. Now, how could this have happened? Well, it was a lot for your money. There was song, plus dance, plus spectacle, plus drama, plus legs. There was such a controversy about those legs that anybody who was anybody had to be able to say that he had seen that wicked show. Well, what can we say of The Black Crook? Not much. Its score is a melange of uninspired songs like the one we just heard. Pretty tiddly. Then it has dance music of similarly low caliber, like this one called The March of the Amazons. And there was also a dull little number called the Black Crook Waltz, which went like this. But why go on? However, this number was bolstered up by a grand introduction uh, of pompous nature, uh, which went something like this. sound sillier. Then there was also the usual piano tremolo type incidental music that we still recall from the silent movie days. That sort of thing. All these pieces just followed one another for five and a half hours without rhyme or reason uh, like its Germanic plot in its French ballet and its American comedy song. In other words, it was a high-class expensive variety show what I think is really interesting when I hear this is, is, you know, he alludes to the fact that that big intro before the waltz is very operatic in its scale. I mean, we could take it and reorchestrate it for instruments and put it in front of a Verdi opera or a Puccini opera, but I think that it is diluted when we get da-da-da-da-da. It just cheapens it. So we have this interesting dichotomy that basically we have a high-class variety show that is happening. Well, it pitches us right into two other composers and thinking about the idea of an American sound and what does that look like in John Philip Sousa and Reginald DeCoven. So John Philip Sousa, I think we're all pretty familiar as the March King. Fourth of July doesn't really occur without a John Philip Sousa march, but he was also revered for several full-scale musicals. El Capitan was probably the most successful. It opened on Broadway in 1896 and ran for a total of 112 performances. So it was successful for the time. And here, uh, it's a little hard to see, but on the, uh, on the cover page, it says that El Capitan is a comic opera. And yet, it didn't appear at an opera house. It opened in a Broadway house. 
Now, DeKoven was an American composer that was born in Connecticut in 1859 and composed 20 light operas and operettas along with an additional songs and orchestral pieces. He was heavily influenced by Gilbert and Sullivan. And Robin Hood debuted in 1891 at the Chicago Opera House in Chicago. Now, DeKoven also has a Met connection. Um, did any of you ever catch the opera The Canterbury Pilgrims? Nobody. All right. Well, it debuted at the Old Met in 1917. So had multiple performances and then was never seen again. So here we've got a composer that is working in what we might assume as the musical theater world, but also composing legitimate opera that's appearing uh, at our own Metropolitan Opera. These two composers really usher us into the 20th century where we see a strong return to the world of operetta and specifically American voices in operetta. So we've already seen Gilbert and Sullivan, we've already seen Offenbach, but now we get some Americans that are really working in this field. Of course, we know that The Merry Widow debuted in 1905, but we saw composers like Sigmund Romberg and Victor Hubert. Now, Victor Herbert and uh, Sigmund Rongberg were not American-born, but they moved to the United States and made their careers here. We consider them to have a real American style to their work. Romberg was born in Hungary, and he immigrated to the, uh, to the city uh, very early on in his career. He is known uh, for The Student Prince in 1924 and The New Moon in 28. Victor Herbert is uh, Irish-born, uh, trained in Germany, and he had success in the U.S. as a composer, and he, too, had a Met connection. When he moved to the United States, he was married. His wife was the opera singer Therese Forrester, and she is the singer who sang in the Met debut of Aida in the title role. Um, we also know him from uh, pieces like uh, Perfect Holiday Piece, Babes in Toyland, and The Naughty Marietta, which appeared in 1910. Now, these pieces, specifically Victor Herbert and Romberg, proved to be a fertile ground for the world of Hollywood and the movie musical. So they were popular on stage, but they also allowed us to transition to the silver screen. And of course, the two people who made the most money doing these sorts of things were the ultimately talented Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy. Now, interestingly, when we look at these two folks and the intersection between opera and musical, Jeanette did not come from the opera world to film. She was a singer who actually longed to sing opera, and when she retired and stepped away from doing film, she actually went and studied with Lottie Lehmann, the famous soprano. And Lehmann said, there couldn't have been a more diligent, a more serious, a more pliable person than Jeanette. The lessons which I had started with a kind of suspicious curiosity turned out to be a sheer delight for me. And actually, when she stopped making films, Jeanette MacDonald went on to make her operatic debut in 1943 as Marguerite in Faust uh, in Montreal. She was 40 years old when she made her debut in the opera world. Now, on the flip side of that, Nelson Eddy is somebody who did come from the opera world into the musical world. Uh, he had sung with the Philadelphia Opera Society and San Francisco Opera, where he performed 28 roles, including Silvio and Pagliacci, Wolfram and Tannhäuser, Amenazro in Aida. Now, that is important for us, because that role, he sang in San Francisco on November 11, 1934, with a cast that included Elizabeth Rethberg, 
Giovanni Martinelli, and somebody else who crossed between opera and musical theater, and that person was Ezio Pinza. So I couldn't pass up the chance to highlight these two lovely people in probably what is one of the um, campiest numbers from Naughty Marietta, and that is Ah Sweet Mystery of Life, At Last I Found You. Um, I took the clip from the end of the movie, right before the final sequence, so they're now going to profess their love, they're going to fall in love Hollywood style, and basically ride off into the sunset. the fact that she is so emotive and expressive as she sings and he does nothing. He just <laughs> sings and stares at her and I think that that's an interesting uh, point for conversation because we always talk about how in opera they don't act, they just sing and in musical theater they act and they sing and if there was ever a moment that really brought that to light, it's this. Nelson Eddy is not doing anything other than singing. And she's busy pouring her heart out, trying to be romantic, wearing her Marie Antoinette costume. So I think we have to think about, the A, the time period, but also that it's not just that we act in opera or we act in musical theater. But we do see folks doing different things that come from different areas. So keep that in mind as we move forward with these singers who cross between our musical theater world and our uh, world of opera. Well, this takes us to the 1920s and the rise of what we know as the modern book musical. So uh, we are moving beyond the light-hearted operettas and into a greater integration of music, dialogue, and movement, while also exploring much more dramatic themes. So one historian described the book musical uh, time as, here we come to a completely new genre. The musical play, as distinguished from the musical comedy. Now come complete integration of song, humor, production numbers into a single artistic entity. Further definition from the Cambridge Companion to the Musical tells us, a musical play where the songs and dances are fully integrated into a well-made story with serious dramatic goals that is able to evoke genuine emotions other than laughter. So we're really going to feel something now as we move into these book musicals. We're not just going to sit in the audience and laugh and have sort of uh, entertainment or a comedy. We're going to have some drama. Of course, the one that changes everything is the one that people love, which is Showboat. Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II. Based on the novel by Edna Ferber, uh, featuring a full score by Jerome Kern, and of course lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II, the piece was originally produced by Florence Ziegfeld. So the man who could bring the operatic scale to something like Showboat. The show debuted on Broadway in 1927. 
Of course, one of the signature numbers that comes from this is Old Man River. And again, we see an interac uh, intersection between opera and musical theater. In the original production, a gentleman by the name of Julius Bledsoe played the character of Joe that sings the number. Bledsoe is somebody who came from the world of opera, having sung at Chicago Opera's production of Verdi's Aida in the role of Amenazro. So Amenazro is a real defining role for a lot of these guys. He also sang the title role of Emperor Jones in the European debut and then came back to New York and sang it again. Of course, the singer that we as a modern day audience perhaps are the most familiar with is Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson was uh, from our neck of the woods. He was from Princeton. He pursued a career in law, in law graduating from the Columbia Law School. Um, and he worked briefly as a lawyer, but quickly became frustrated. And he left the field to become an actor and singer. I guess you could say if you're a lawyer, you're also an actor. Um, I'm, I, I guess there's a connection there. Uh, it ended up being that Paul Robeson played Joe in the London version of Showboat, and then he appeared in this 1936 film version. We're going to watch towards the end of the piece where he sings with the chorus. Again, listen to what they're doing vocally and also the size of the orchestra that's singing with them. We automatically grab our, our heart and we are just blown away by the power of the voice. Unamplified in a Broadway house with a massive orchestra that's singing and doing this storytelling. It's very different than you naughty naughty men from the Black Crook. We are feeling a real emotional connection to this story and to these folks that are performing for us. I think, you know, if we take a look at it and we really look at that, we can make this same application to Wagner's work, Puccini's work, Verdi's work. We can talk about opera. It's the idea, it's evoking a genuine emotion other than laughter. Now, poor Donizetti and Rossini and their comedies, they might take offense to that um, because they think their operas are important. But really, opera and musical theater is about evoking an emotion, whether it be laughter, whether it be sadness, whether it be uh, excitement or we're cheering. We are in evoking an emotion. 
Showboat in the Opera House. So out of all of the things that are in the canon, Showboat has become something that in the recent years has been all over opera houses in the United States. Now the photos that are up here are specifically from a production directed and created by Francesca Zambalo. And this production has been seen at Chicago Lyric, San Francisco Opera, Glimmerglass Opera, Houston Grand, and Dallas. And when we think about Showboat, and we think about having seen the movie, it makes sense that it would be in the Opera House. Number one, the sheer scale of what we need to accomplish, number one. Number two, we have to have two separate choruses. So we have to have an African-American chorus, who's representing those that are working on the docks and that are helping along the way on the river. And then we've got the uh, basically white chorus that is either traveling on the showboat itself or is coming onto the showboat when it stops in its town. Now for Francesca Zimbalo, she has a great quote that says, she believes that this does have a place in the opera house and she doesn't direct this piece as I'm directing it as a musical or I'm directing it as an opera. She says, it's about the story and how am I best going to get the story across? I use whatever tricks I have from opera, musicals, and theater. I don't think, oh, here's my opera hat now. So again, it goes back to that idea of storytelling. The other thing that we have to remember is, is that the original orchestra of Showboat was somewhere between 45 to 50 pieces. Now that is on scale with what you've got in an opera orchestra, which is why when they go and do it in the opera house, it has that full lush orchestration. The only other place that we know that has made a commitment to that and that also has a pit big enough to do that are our friends across the street at Lincoln Center Theater. So all of those revivals that we've seen, South Pacific, The King and I, those use My Fair Lady. They all use the original orchestra which means that you've got somewhere between 35 to 50 people in the pit all playing that glorious score. But the best part about the Opera House is, is that all of that music is not amplified. So it's exactly the way that these folks intended it to be. We hear it in its natural state. Now, the Opera Houses are big. I won't lie, they normally have body mics and there is some sort of amplification that happens during the dialogue because it just becomes challenging. But when we move into that singing, no microphones. We experience it the way that it is. And it ends up being that Showboat really straddles that place between the Broadway house and the Opera House. It's going to be uh, one of our other two pieces that's coming up in the 1930s ends up doing the exact same thing. As we move into that time, we see musical theater going in very different directions. So in 1935, we see the premiere of what is happening at the house right now, the Gershwin's folk opera, Porgy and Bess, combining folk, operatic, and jazz idioms, moving away from spoken dialogue. There's not a lot of spoken dialogue that happens in Porgy. Again, we see a strong intersection between the world of opera and musical theater in that Anne Brown, the first Bess, was a Juilliard graduate, and she was the first African-American vocalist to graduate from Juilliard. While Todd Duncan, who was the first Porgy, was a graduate of Butler University and had already debuted in Cavalleria Rusticana with the Aeolian Opera here in New York City, an African-American uh, opera company, before he went into Porgy. 
So we have two lead singers that are coming from that world of opera and the classical era. 1937 saw Rodgers and Hart's Babes in Arms, really going back to a book musical where what we want to experience is laughter, rah, 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 a lighter plot, and a stronger emphasis on dance and movement. Finally, also in 1937, we saw the premiere of Mark Blitzstein's uh, political pro-union musical, The Cradle Will Rock. This was uh, a part of the Federal Theater Project that actually got shut down a few days before it was ready to open on Broadway. And to avoid any of the government and union restrictions, Blitzstein went onto the stage, played the piano and the score while the entire cast sat in the audience and sang from the audience. Now, both of those pieces, both The Cradle Will Rock and Porgy and Bess, are two pieces that we have seen opera companies do and we've also seen them in musical theater. So we are seeing a blurring of the line and a straddling between things as we continue to move forward in our timeline. We move to the 1940s and the 1960s, which for American musical theater, we think of as the golden age. And if you are an opera goer, for many opera goers, they will say that is also the golden age of singing at the Metropolitan Opera of singers who were there. This was a time of change for a musical theater. It was also a time of change for opera. We saw hits from Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, the Gershwins again. But if Showboat paved the way for us to rethink the way that we think about the book musical, Oklahoma was about to change it again. And this time through that incorporation of dance and movement as a storytelling element. Everything was integrated. If you couldn't express yourself through speaking, you sang. If you couldn't express yourself through song, you danced. So we were seeing this connection and an integration. Oklahoma is also the first what we would define blockbuster on the Broadway scene. Uh, it ran on Broadway for 2,212 performances, which when we think about that today, that is a massive amount. Uh, we think of Phantom of the Opera that's been running for 25 years um, or over 25 years at this point. But at that time, Oklahoma for 2,000 performances is really changing the way that we think about that. Now, there was also a change that was happening in terms of operas being a source material for musical theater. And the one that we first see is Carmen Jones. Carmen Jones by Oscar Hammerstein II is an operatic adaptation of Bizet's Carmen. So it debuted in 1943 and it used Bizet's score set to English lyrics. Now, of course, to make it accessible, the story was updated to World War II era and it featured an all African-American cast. The cigar factory where Carmen works now has become a parachute factory. She still works at the factory, but Don Jose has become an Air Force flyboy. And uh, he is now called Joe. And Escamillo goes from being a bullfighter to a boxer. Now, the production was transferred to film in 1954, and this was under the direction of Otto Preminger, and it starred the stunningly beautiful Dorothy Dandridge as Carmen Jones and Harry Belafonte. Now, in this version, the challenge makes another intersection with opera because they weren't their singing voices. Dorothy Dandridge was voiced by none other than famous American mezzo-soprano, Marilyn Horn. And for Harry Belafonte, it was a man by the name of Laverne Hutcherson, who was the original Joe when the piece opened, and he also was one of the original Porgies. 
So we are seeing an intersection again between opera and musical theater. Literally taking Bizet's score and we're putting this English translation over it and people are willing to love it and it ends up being that of course it comes out as a film version in 53. Um, the same year that we saw Carmen Jones, another musical appeared on the scene that used a score uh, that was based on a 1911 play as its source material but the music came from Alexander Borodin's opera and that was Prince Igor. The name of the musical was Kismet the number that we all know from that is Come My Way, You're a Stranger in Paradise, which has also been recorded, I believe, by Bobby Darin and millions of other singers. Uh, so uh, I think that it's an interesting time when we thought that opera was a source material for musicals. So it's also a time that we saw, as I said, singers that were moving between the two different areas. So we saw the world of opera and musical theater. Ezio Pinza spent 22 seasons at the Met, and at his retirement, he was the original Emil in South Pacific. Soprano Patricia Brooks, who had had a long career at the New York City Opera, sang in the ensemble of the original cast of Sound of Music. Patricia Newey, who also sang at City Opera, originated the role of Magda Sorrel in Minotti's uh, The Council, but was also the original Mother Abbess in uh, uh, The Sound of Music. John Raitt um, starred as a replacement for Curly in Oklahoma and later, of course, Billy Bigelow in Carousel. And he studied classically, and what I really love is, is that what his first number that he offered for his audition for Oklahoma was the Largo al Factotum from Barbara of Seville, the Figaro, 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 Figaro aria was the first thing, and they said they didn't need to hear anything else. They would sign him up to sing Curly. Um, and then, of course, this is something that has continued uh, throughout the years. So we've seen Renee Fleming, we've seen Kelly O'Hara, we've seen Paolo Schott. All of these singers who had an experience on the uh, sort of musical theater stage, but also on the opera stage. Um, I am actually, I'm, I'm going to skip playing Ezio Pinza if we have time. We will come back to him. It's, it's all right, don't worry. Um, but there was also other singers who uh, did this at the, that had the, the same time. Uh, Dorothy Sarnoff was an American opera singer and musical theater person. She sang regularly in New York. Uh, she was the original Lady Tang in the 1951 record, uh, performance of King and I. And Elaine Malban was also an American soprano. She sang at City Opera. She was at San Francisco. Um, she also appeared live on television for NBC Opera Theater. And she's also on the recording of The Great Caruso with Mario Lanza. But the reason that I mentioned these two ladies is because in the 1950s, opera served as the inspiration for another musical, and that was a musical called My Darlin' Aida, which debuted in 1952. It premiered on Broadway at the Winter Garden, actually. It only played for 89 performances. And Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times stated, Verdi's music in My Darling Aida is romantically Italian. Charles Friedman's new libretto is American, with a strong dash of Uncle Tom's Cabin seasoning. Despite the beauty of the singing by Dorothy Sarnoff and Elaine Malban, there is no way of avoiding the fact that the music and the libretto have nothing in common, except perhaps a certain shoddiness of style. So this was literally taking Verdi's music moving Aida to Memphis, Tennessee during the time of the Civil War and set on a plantation. If that isn't a recipe for everything to go wrong, I don't know what is.
But it did, and it ran for 89 performances. But the other interesting thing with these two ladies is, is that not only were they in the cast, but there was also somebody else in the cast who also went on to have a respected career. And that was the uh, head of the chorus for the show was none other than Robert Shaw, the famed choral conductor and arranger. So again, we see that we are connecting with this. Aida comes back again in 2000 with Elton John and Tim Rice taking that same subject matter. Disney had pulled the idea from a book that was actually written by Leontine Price. They had secured the rights and they actually wanted to make an animated version and they wanted to have Elton John and Tim Rice do the music. But Elton John said, no, I really, I really don't want to do another animated piece. I'd rather do a full musical. Uh, so he signed on despite his opinion, and I quote, opera people can be very elitist. <laughs> we know that it went and ran. But jumping back in our timeline to the 50s, the 50s brought us uh, a composer who we've already sort of seen in a situation doing two very different things. West Side Story and Candide. So Candide opened in 1956, and when it opened, it was a disaster. It closed after two months with a total of 73 performances. The opera would go through multiple editions and multiple changes. So the original libretto was by Lillian Hellman. Once uh, she sort of saw what happened with it, she said, I will not let you perform this unless you do my libretto. Bernstein and the rest of his friends said, we're not going to have that. So they worked with Hugh Wheeler uh, to create a different libretto. And then a third libretto was done by John Maucheri and John Wells. That edition is known as the Scottish Opera audition, or the Scottish Opera version. That's the version that we somewhat know, but the version that we as New Yorkers are most familiar with is the one from New York City. And that was done in conjunction with the director, Hal Prince. You want to learn more, you can go right across the street and learn all about Hal's life at the New York Public Library. The vocal writing, of course, we know in Candide is extremely operatic. Glitter and Begay is the best example. Running high notes, lots of coloratura. But yet, on the other side of the spectrum, he also gives us West Side Story. Open on Broadway in 1957. He was working on these simultaneously at the same time. And what's interesting is, in my research, there's material that was swapped between the two of them. So in West Side Story, when Tony and Maria sing One Hand, One Heart, that duet, that was originally intended to be in Candide between Kuniganda and Candide. On the flip side, the music of G. Officer Krupke in West Side Story comes directly from the Venice scene in Candide. So he's pulling from himself and working through all of these sorts of things. The 70s brings us to the rock opera and the idea that they were tended to be sung through pieces, no dialogue. So we've eliminated recitative, we've eliminated uh, spoken dialogue. And interestingly enough, two of these three, uh, JC Superstar and Avita, started as concept albums. So they were just only the musical numbers, none of the connective tissue. Then they decided they wanted to make them into full shows. It ended up being that we see uh, that JC Superstar debuts uh, in 1970 uh, with an album. In 71, it comes to Broadway. 76, we see Avita uh, uh, um, coming as an album, and in 79, three years later. In 79, the same thing also happened in that we had Sweeney Todd. So the music was a key element in this production. Over 80% of it is either sung as truly sung or spoken recit with underscoring from the orchestra. This means that everything is individually meshed together and it's really drawing us together. 
The orchestra grows a bit, and also we see that. Now, Sweeney Todd is one of those pieces like Showboat that has been in the Opera House. In fact, this afternoon on our panel, one of our panelists is Ron Raines, who is coming from singing a performance uh, of Sweeney at Michigan Opera Theater. Um, we've seen it appear at Lyric Opera of Chicago, Houston Grand Opera, Eugene Opera, Vancouver. English National Opera did a production. It's the same production you may have seen here that was staged with the New York Philharmonic with Bryn Terfel and Emma Thompson as Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney. Um, so it's something that happens within those seasons and allows us to be able to experience. So where does this sort of leave us in terms of how it manifests itself with opera and musical theater? So, of course, on our season, we ended up having, you know, Madame Butterfly and Miss Saigon. I think that when we have Butterfly, we know that it debuted in 1904. It's based on a play uh, that Puccini saw, and he was really inspired. Miss Saigon, on the other hand, is debuting and coming to us in the 90s. It's coming on the heels of um, the creative team uh, making Les Mis. And how do they discover it? They end up being inspired by a photograph that they see of a young mother who is at the airport giving her child uh, to go to the United States to have a better life, knowing that his father is an American soldier. And that idea of sacrifice is something that speaks to these two gentlemen, and they end up creating something that's really beautiful. Now, we as an opera audience know the sequence where it ends up being that Butterfly gives away her child and, uh, well, she reveals her child to Sharpless and says, I had a child with this man. I am willing to sacrifice everything for him so that he can have a better life. We have an emotional connection to that. We know that we cry. We feel beautiful. We are overwhelmed by Butterfly's sense of sacrifice. But what we don't always know is, is we don't always know what it looks like in Miss Saigon. So I have chosen the uh, original Kim, Lea Salonga. This is from a 2000 recording in Manila, an entire production. It is all available on YouTube, the entire production. Um, and it's very different in terms of the moment for Kim um, than it is for Madama Butterfly. She is much more aggressive. She is a much more assertive woman and a much stronger woman. So I wanted to give you at least a little bit of a taste of this.
arrive. So I have to say, and I'm going to argue this point, that the drama that we see both vocally and emotionally is the same as what we experience when we watch Butterfly make the sacrifices for her own child. That storytelling element transfers from one art form to the other. I will also say, this is a huge orchestra. This orchestra is 41 pieces. So this is not a little tiny pit band that she is singing over, but she is really powering over a large orchestra. I would encourage you to watch all of it. It's gorgeous. And some of the musical writing is on par with what we experience in the opera house. All right, well, what about La Boheme and our friends at Rent? So we know that Boheme <laughs> debuted in 1896, and we know that it was based off of the scenes of the life of the Bohemian, uh, really inspired by folks that uh, um, Puccini knew, roommates, life experience that he had, and Rent was very much the same way. Jonathan Larson, we know, is a New Yorker born in White Plains. Uh, and it began uh, in 1998 that they were going to create this piece um, with playwright Billy Aronson. Uh, and they wanted to re-envision how they looked at La Boheme through a New York contemporary lens. So it ended up being that Aronson had the idea, but then Larson wanted to do more with it. And they came to agreement that Larson would take it on and he would flesh it out and come up with something. Of course, they moved it to from, it originally was supposed to be on the Upper West Side, close to where the Met was, and they moved it down to the Lower East Side. Um, and it's very much inspired, just like Puccini was with Boheme. It ended up being that Larson and his roommates kept an illegal wood-burning stove um, because there wasn't any heat in their building. Um, he also dated a dancer for uh, several years uh, who left him for other men um, and eventually left him for a woman, just like what happens in the musical. And these, of course, influence the aspects that we see in that. So he wanted to work on his own experiences. So when I was trying to think about, well, what could I show you that you would have a strong connection with? We all know what happens at the end of La Boheme. It ends up being that Mimi dies, everybody's sad, Rodolfo yells, Mimi, and the curtain comes crashing down. So I decided that for this, we could watch the end of what happens at Rent because it's very different. So we're going to see the same sort of sequence that we normally see. It's from a 2008, uh, the final performance of Rent they filmed. Um, so we're going to see the final moment. Just like we do in the opera, Mimi arrives and she is not doing well. So let's take a look. Maureen? It's Mimi! We can't get her up the stairs! No! She was huddled in the park in the dark and she was freezing and begged to come here. Over here? Oh, God. God, I... I know you. You're shivering. She's been living on the street. We need some heat. I'm shivering. Okay. We can buy some wood and something to eat. I'm afraid she needs more than the heat. I heard that Collins will call for a doctor, honey. Hello, 911. I'm on hold. Go, go, would you light my candle? Yes, we will, God. Find the candle.
Recognize that theme? Was that his waltz? So again, Larson uses um, Musetta's Waltz theme in there, and I find it interesting that he decides to give Mark the chance to, or Roger, the chance to be able to sing his song um, and really give him an aria moment, which Puccini doesn't. Puccini gives them a love duet to captivate. Now the other change that Mr. Larson makes is that Mimi dies, but then 
we wanted to have a happy ending, so Mimi comes back to life. Um, it ends up being that she sees that white light, and they say, it's not your time. She comes back to life, and they all sing a rousing chorus at the end of the uh, musical, sort of uh, it lifting us up and not leaving us with the sadness and the tear-stained cheeks that Puccini does. One final piece that was on our season this year that has a parallel is Orfeo and Eurydice and Hades Town, the most recent Tony Award-winning musical. So we know that uh, Orfeo was written by Gluck. Uh, it emphasized the idea of a mythological journey. Uh, we are going to rescue somebody from the underworld. Had choruses and dancing, so movement, chorus, and recitative. Debuted in 1762, and of course this is that idea of somebody being rescued. Well, it ends up being that uh, Anise Mitchell takes this on. She's our composer of Town. She was born in 1981. She grew up in Vermont and was really inspired by this idea of mythology and mythological myths and wanted to take something that she could create what she called a folk opera. Now thinking about the 1970s where we had a concept album or a rock album that came out before the actual theatrical piece came about, Mitchell does the same thing. It ended up being that she first released an album in 2007 with all of the songs, but envisioned a larger scale piece. In 2012, she found a stage director in Rachel Chavkin. If you saw uh, Natasha Pierre in the Comet of 1812 on Broadway, she was the director of that. And it ended up being that they added 15 more songs to the existing album to be able to flesh out where there were problems. They also end up combining two myths together. So Persephone and Hades and Orfeo and Eurydice. I should say in your handout, I provided information about how the characters are different and similar in each one of the pieces that are based on opera. So take a look at those. I wanted to try to provide something that would give you a flavor of what it is. And with Hades Town, the only thing that I could choose would be uh, their performance that ended up happening on the Tony Awards. So uh, this is where they're ending up singing uh, the song The Road to Hell and Wait For Me. Wait For Me is Orpheus's song, which is very similar to Che Faro Senza Iridice, the mezzo aria in Orfeo. So let's take a look at this. Once upon a time. And I should say this is Hermes who functions as a narrator. A don't ask when. Brother, don't ask when. It was the road to hell. It was hard times. It was the world of God. And man, there was a mighty king, there was a mighty queen, the underworld below, the hungry world above, and there were those who traveled in between for money or for love. There was a poor boy and a hungry young girl. Orpheus! She called his name before she went. You really see? So he set out singing on the road to hell. I'm coming! To bring her home again. 
How to get to Hades Town? You have to take the long way down through the underground, under cover of night, laying low, staying out of sight. Ain't no compass, brother. Ain't no map, just a telephone wire and a railroad map. Keep on walking and don't look back till you get to the bottom line. Wait for me, I'm coming. Wait, I'm coming with you. Wait for me, I'm coming too. I'm coming too. River sticks is high and wide. Send the bricks and razor wire, walls of iron and concrete, hound dogs howling round the gate. Those dogs will lay down and play dead. If you got the bones, if you got the bread, but if all you got is your own two legs, just be glad you got it. Where does this leave us? One, opera and musicals are about storytelling. Number two, there is always going to be crossover, whether it be singers who go to the musical theater stage, musical theater singers who go to the opera stage, and finally, composers, lyricists, and librettists that are looking to find a new way to tell the story. Thank you for being here. We've had a great journey, and we whipped through musical theater history. Thanks, everybody. That was Stuart Holt, the Guild's Director of School Programs and Community Engagement, breaking down the unique characteristics of both operas and musicals and exploring the process of adaptation. If you enjoyed today's episode and are interested in learning more about other Metropolitan Opera Guild programs, visit metguild.org for more information. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera. Thank you so much for listening, and we wish you all a safe and happy holiday season.